you're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, Will. Hello, David. And hello, listeners out there in Listenerville. Welcome back. Uh, Internet? Internet land? Welcome back to the Common Descent Podcast. This is episode 12. Yeah. Which is very exciting. That means we're halfway through a year. Yeah, that's that's very exciting. It's it's a good number to be at. It is. Things are, are going really well, actually, uh, in terms of podcast and listener and audience interaction and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. We lots of interaction on Facebook, lots of interaction on Twitter. We've got a bunch of patrons now on Patreon, yeah. which is very exciting. So yeah, things are things are looking great. We're excited to come back every episode and talk to you, dear listeners. It's it's all for you guys and and a little bit for us. And also for us. <laughs> it's it's for you guys and and <laughs> at all. Today's episode so episode 10, if you'll recall, was the Tree of Life, and mm-hmm. the reason we did that episode was because it was a subject that was dancing in the on the edges of every episode discussion, but that we never really took the time to sit and talk about. Yeah, we, yeah. we usually touched on at least one or two aspects of that subject just about every episode. Yeah, so we, you know, it, it, that framework by which we understand life and life history. Today's episode is very similar in that sense, that today we are talking about the geologic time scale and deep time and how we understand Earth history. Mm-hmm. And when we're talking about ancient creatures and ancient events and we talk about the Cretaceous and the Cambrian and this and that, you know, what what do those words mean and where do they come from and, and, and what is this time scale that we're using? Yeah, how, how do we figure it all out? Yeah, so we're, we're going to be talking about what the time scale is, where the time scale comes from, and the all-important question that people are always eager to know the answer to, how do we place things in the time scale? Mm-hmm. How do we know where they go? So that'll be today's episode, and hopefully it'll be very informative, uh, especially for listeners who are keeping up with episodes as we go. Uh, this will hopefully help inform, you know, give you a little bit more of, a, of in- insight into where these ages and and time periods and things like that that we're constantly talking about yeah. are coming from may clear up anything that s- seemed a little wonky or, or you know confusing beforehand yes it can get confusing it yeah it, it's it, it certainly it definitely can. is <laughs> all this and more after the news all right so starting this news section i have a Fun news article. I, I really enjoyed this one, but it does not work with fossils. It's more talking about an evolutionary concept of a group of animals. Yeah. This group of animals being boids. Boids. And the focus being their eggs. Cool. And so it's a really cool article. Uh, it was, it's about a it's about a publication in Science by uh, Stoddard et al. Mm-hmm. And they basically looked at the differing shapes of bird eggs and were. Ooh. Kind of asking a question of why? Why are there so many crazy different shapes of eggs? You know, why is there is there a connection or correlation or some sort of pattern they can find by looking at and comparing this variety of eggs? Uh, right. And and we all 
recognize what they're talking about. You know, we, typically when you think of eggs, you think of the chicken egg shape, but bird eggs range all the way from a almost perfect sphere with things like ostriches mm-hmm. to crazy, like almost triangles. There's a lot of huh. high up nesting birds that have a very pointed egg. Yeah, very conical shape. Yeah, exactly. And the reason that they wanted to look at this, the reason this question came up, is that bird eggs are pretty important to bird survival, considering that their whole purpose is to bring in the next generation, to yes. let the baby grow and survive. So being something that is so crucial, it's odd that they vary so much. Interesting. You know, it'd be like if every single mammal heart looked vastly different. Yeah. From one another. So they're all doing the same crucial, critical job, but yet you have some that are shaped completely different than another. So they figured there must be some driving force behind that ver- variation. Right, right. Why are they different? What's what's the correlation there? Yes, and they did find some. So what they did is they went through about 50,000 different eggs Wow. from 1,400 species. Wow. Which represents, I love it, about 14% of known bird species. <laughs> I was going to say, that's... That's, a, I was going to say that's like 10, 15% yeah. of all the birds that there are. It's, they did a lot. This is a big study with a, a fairly simplistic procedure. Like it's a very, this is well, the other reason I like this. They did a very straightforward study to discover some cool stuff. So yeah. they looked at all the eggs and they just, they just brought it down to a cross section view of the shape of the egg. So mm-hmm. just flat images and... They use these silhouettes to compare two aspects of the egg, how spherical versus, you know, elliptical it is, mm-hmm. and how asymmetrical it is, by by meaning is how much bigger is one end than the other, or are they roughly the same? Right, right. Is it, is it round and broad on one end, and then pointy and cone-edged yeah. on the other side? Like you think of a chicken egg, yeah. but there are plenty that are almost perfect ovals. So right. they compared those two aspects, and then once they got that analysis done, they started looking at how this compared to the birds they were studying in the the family group, you know, how their relations now compared to the chart. So right. were similar birds falling in similar areas? Were certain body types falling in certain categories of eggs, you know, with certain so on and so forth to try to see what patterns might fall out of this. And what they came to is that stronger flying birds typically lay more elongated eggs. Interesting. Yeah. That's a really interesting to, to finding because that's not the thing you would expect to correlate with egg shape. Mm-hmm. It's it could have been a whole bunch of different features, but it turns out yeah, the the more flighted birds, the the more dedicated flyers have a big effect on, or that that aspect has a big effect on egg shape. Yeah, and if I remember correctly, uh, reading about this, they didn't find a correlation with things like nesting habits. No, not not as strong. Like there were definitely, they said there was definitely some th- other things that had effects, but not nearly as strong as the flying. And they they determined uh, flyers by looking at the wing shapes. To right, further, right, right. You know, that's how they that's what they defined as stronger flyers is by looking at different wing shapes. Now they state flat out, this does not say why. This study only says there's a connection. It doesn't say right. why there's a connection. So that variation in egg shape is seems to be somehow related to the flying ability of the bird. Yeah. They they posit a hypothesis mm-hmm. saying that perhaps adapting to flight streamlines a bird's body which could narrow the birthing canal. Okay. That makes and sense. 
by making your egg elongated and elliptical, you can keep the volume without, but still reduce the radius so that you're not reducing the size of the egg and therefore amount of nutrition the baby can have. Right. You're you're making it a more convenient shape without shrinking your babies. Yeah. You're making it ergonomic. Yes. Now, there was one guy, uh, Santiago Claremont, uh, who's from the Ontario Museum, who pointed out, con- or, or not contradictions, but voiced things that he felt went against that hypothesis in the fact that there are plenty of bulky bodied birds that are strong flyers. Right. And he said that plumage has more to do with body shape than the actual body does very often is how streamlined hmm. the feathers can be. And he, he used a couple of examples. Uh, frigate birds and swifts were two that he gave that are long distance flyers with fairly round bodies. Interesting. And so it's definitely not determined, but it's a... It's not a perfect answer. Yeah, but it's a... The study itself is a cool one, and that's what I liked about it, is it's a very big study that no one had done yet, and mm-hmm. you know, at least gave us some strings to pull on. So now we might be able to figure out new things about how bird reproduction is affected by their lifestyle. Interesting. This is really cool because the, when I was reading about this article, the first thing that came to my mind, because they, they were saying, well, you know, it seems egg shape strongly correlates to flying ability. The first thought that came to my mind was, what shape are dinosaur eggs? Yes. Yep. That's what I started thinking about was modern other modern egg layers. Yep. I know that, you know, a lot of big theropods had long, like elongated mm-hmm. eggs. Uh, sauropods, I think, had more spherical eggs, Yep. Uh, at least in some of them. But one of the articles I read about this pointed out that Maniraptorans, things like Velociraptors, the family lineage and Troodon family lineage, also had kind of conical mm-hmm. asymmetrical eggs, which yeah. is really interesting. So this is something that might be correlated, if it's correlated to body shape or the way or, or mode of locomotion, this is something that seems to have kicked off like so many bird things before birds. Mm-hmm. And it's and there have been things because uh, you mentioned the nesting habits, and I have to heard this before reading this article, but there have been things that have pointed to different shapes being for certain nesting areas and habits. Right. Uh, my favorite being one that were cliff-dwelling birds that have incredibly conical eggs so that if the egg rolls, it goes in a circle. Yes, it doesn't roll off the cliff. Mm-hmm. And so, but yeah, no, with modern ones, uh, you know, like turtle eggs are perfect little spheres, but crocodilian eggs very often aren't. Yeah, snake and lizard eggs tend to be those long shapes too. Mm-hmm. Which, again, those are long bodies. So, very interesting. As, as Santiago put it, there's definitely more to this that needs to be looked into. So it's a it's a cool start to, I'm sure, neat discoveries. It's also a really interesting example of a feature that is very intriguing that might not be directly adapted for function. Mm-hmm. That it might, the bird, the shape of the bird egg might not be a function thing. It might be a side effect of another adaptation. Mm-hmm. If it's based on the body shape, then the body shape is evolving for a particular function, and the eggs are just getting kind of carried along for the ride. Yeah, which is always really it's always really fun to find uh, sort of weird evolutionary side effects. Well, and that's that's how you often can get really weird uh, evolved traits. Is that you know if we if we take this hypothesis, your body gets narrow, so your egg has to get skinnier Mm -hmm. it has to become elongated to fit through that now narrower opening but then eventually a bird with now a skinnier egg suddenly it rolls differently 
and that becomes a new selective pressure for allowing it to nest in different areas. Yes. That was completely not the initial adaptation, yes. but it was a utilized secondary adaptation. And it's really, that's why, this is why evolution can get so complicated, because something that is now crucial to a species was originally just a, yeah, well, I mean, I still need eggs, so. Yeah. yeah. And it just evolved <laughs> along with something else that was being pressured. It's very cool. Interesting. Interested to see more of this in the future. Yeah, definitely. And now some fossils. Back to what we're good at. Some really old fossils. Uh, so this news piece is based on a new study by Pardo et al., published in PNAS. This study presents two new fossils of a new species of prehistoric amphibian. This is really cool because it's not what we think of when we think of amphibian. In fact, it's about the last thing that anybody thinks of when they think of amphibian. Yeah. In the Paleozoic and going, you know, into the Triassic, there were all sorts of weird ancient amphibians. Today, there are only three groups mm -hmm. of modern amphibians. Your frogs and toads, mm -hmm. your salamanders, which include newts and things like that, and the third one that no one's ever heard of, which are called Sicilians. Gosh, are they weird. They're super weird. Sicilians are typically very small. They are amphibians. They're notable for being very long-bodied and completely legless. And they have, like, little shark mouths. And they have little shark mouths. Yeah, they're, they're long, limbless amphibians. And they're just so weird, right? They hide in the soil. They're very secretive. Very little is known about them, except, of course, that you should not go up against them when death is on the line. <laughs> and even less is known about their fossil record. There are only two, prior to this, there were only two known species of Mesozoic Sicilians. Inconceivable. These two new fossils represent a third species. And it's old enough, coming from the uh, late Triassic, to represent a transitional form. Mm -hmm. It still has its legs. It's got this mixture of features that you normally see in Sicilians and then features that you see in other, what are called Lysamphibians, which is all the modern amphibians uh, in, in one clade. So it represents this early stage of this Sicilian lineage. They're tiny. The skulls are less than an inch long. They were probably less than a foot long total, just these little wormy amphibian things. They were actually preserved within their own burrows in the sediment. Oh, that's cool. Which is pretty cool. So they represent the by far the earliest Sicilians in the fossil record, a transitional state at the beginning of the Sicilian lineage, they're, they also, I, th I believe, are the oldest Lysamphibian fossils mm -hmm. on record. But what's really interesting, even more interesting than all that stuff, is that they also share traits with an extinct group of amphibians called the Stereospondyls. Oh. So through the Paleozoic and into the Triassic, back before, you know, before reptiles took over, one of the major dominant groups of land animals were the temnospondyls, which were amphibians. They got very big, and they stomped around in semi-aquatic environments. They were cool. Stereospondyls were one group of those, and they had, you know, aquatic forms and semi-aquatic forms. But it was always thought that they existed for a while. They were super diverse in the Triassic, and then they went extinct, and that was that. And that the only lineage, right, the frog Sicilian salamander clade survived into the present. But when they threw this new guy, both of them, into a phylogenetic study, they found that, yes, Sicilians still group with frogs and salamanders as the clade of modern amphibians, but so do all of the stereospondyls. <laughs> <laughs> 
So this fossil has revealed, if their phylogeny is correct, that this whole ancient group of amphibians that were thought of as just a dead-end group are actually ancient members of the same lineage as frogs and salamanders and other modern amphibians, and that Sicilians evolved within the stereospondyls. Interesting. That their ancestors were stereospondyls. Which is really cool! That's very cool. <laughs> it Basically, we had this one group of amphibians that we did hardly knew anything about, and we said, oh, I mean, I guess it evolved from the ancestor of frogs and salamanders, since they grouped together. And we had this dead-end, super-diverse group of ancient amphibians. Turns out, Sicilians may actually be part of that group. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. Like, that. talk about rewriting family trees. Yeah, but and then it's still... It, all that really means, right? It doesn't mean that Sicilians aren't where we thought they were. Mm -hmm. It really means stereospondyls aren't where we thought they were. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that they are part of the frog salamander Sicilian group. Yeah, this is like the, um, what is it, heritage.com when you find out that <laughs> <laughs> your, your, your great, 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 great grand whatever was actually, you know, Chinese. And you're like, well, I didn't even know. <laughs> That's totally unexpected. That's super cool. Yeah, this also suggests, if that's correct, and these all form one clade, that Lysamphibia, frog salamanders, Sicilians, and now Stereospondyls, originated earlier than we, we thought. Because mm -hmm. we know the Stereospondyl fossil record goes back way farther than any of these other modern amphibian groups. So if they're part of that same family tree, then the common ancestor of frog salamanders and Sicilians is much more ancient than we had suspected. Yeah. That's very cool, and I like that it's it's uh, an interesting way for the discovery to be made because it's not that we reanalyzed or discovered a you know a new member of the stereospondyles, but we found a you know a descendant that act as a connecting point between yes the two, and that's a really so that like this is the perfect example of your missing link. It it really is actually yeah is a this great is example of that the the specimen that linked two groups that and before I didn't even know were connected you know, yes typically you think of missing links as ones where you're like oh we well, we we assumed you know humans and apes had a relative but we haven't found it yet uh, right. this is a no we had no clue and then we found this and went oh <laughs> <laughs> yeah this, this link. This link goes a place we didn't even expect it to go. And that's super cool. I should point out, because I, I neglected to say this, these fossils, they're from Colorado. Uh, they were actually discovered in the 90s. Oh, Just cool. not analyzed. You know, this new study, you know, did x-ray analysis. They were able to reconstruct huge portions of the body. The new species is called Chinley Stegophis Jenkins eye. Yeah, I like that name. Yeah, that's pretty cool. <laughs> Chinley Jenkins. So there you go. Amphibians can be cool, too. Yeah, see? You you, you go, amphibians. <laughs> All right, so my next news source is uh, about a, a more classically popular group of animals. This is about another theropod nose. Boo. Woo. I'm just kidding. Theropods. Hooray. Yeah. Wait a minute. Awesome. Both of your things are about theropods today. <laughs> yeah. You cheater. Yeah, I snuck it by. <laughs> so this is about the other end, though. Yes. So this is a study about a well-preserved snout of a theropod known as a Neovenator salarii. 
Mm-hmm. And it was discovered in the UK. It's from early Cretaceous, and it's a allosaurid, so very similar. It has some, you know, most likely some head cresting with a look of this, uh, you know, reconstructions and everything. But its cool. snout was really well preserved, and they were able to CT scan it and find that it had nerve passages throughout the bone and coming to external pores, foramina, right, that right. would have made it a very sensitive area of the body and face. Cool. Now, if this sounds familiar to anyone, there was another fairly recent study that we also did as a news piece about another theropod with a very sensitive snout. That's right. We did that one on Displatosaurus. Yeah, exactly. And so that was a Tyrannosaurid where they found mm-hmm. very similar things. And this is no, by no means like a crazy new thing that we're finding. They had found stuff like this before in theropods uh, and other right. uh, big predators. Uh, the Spinosaurids have been found to have this yeah. very commonly, Spinosaurus and Baryonyx. And what this article did is, though, is it looked at what what might this kind of not just be telling us about this dinosaur, but other dinosaurs with this feature? Right, because now we have this in the Tyrannosaur lineage, mm-hmm. the Allosaurid lineage, and the Spinosaurid lineage. And in the Spinosaurid lineage, the typical thought was that it was used for hunting fish because right. they are classically and and mostly considered aquatic predators or fish eaters at least. And crocodilians have a very similar snout sensitivity exactly. nerve this structure. is the the trigeminal nerve again it's the part that gives cats their sensitive whiskers and a mm-hmm. lot of other animals their extra sensory things on their face that allow them to feel with their face crocs have the most closely comparable version of this nerve and they have the little pits along the face that let them sense water pressure just yep. like a lateral line on a fish does and that way they can hunt pitch dark and by feeling where prey moves in the water. Right. And so that's what they had attributed the Spinosaurid's trigeminal nerve to as well. But since we've now found a Tyrannosaurid and an Allosaurid, it, they're making the point that we, we can't assume that that's what it's being used for. Right. These are not thought to be aquatic predators. Yeah, we don't see, they it. don't see any evidence that shows that these were fish foragers. Yeah. So they most likely were using it for something else, which means the Spinosaurids may or may not have been using it for foraging. Yeah. It's it now kind of it swings the doors open for what this could be used for. Uh and they posited a, a number of possibilities. This is in uh Nature by the way by uh, Barker et al. Yeah. It's in Scientific Reports. Yes, in Scientific Reports. And one of the co-authors is Darren Nash who writes the Tetrapod Zoology blog and wrote the news article that will be on our blog post. Cool guy. Yes, we'll post to his. Uh the main the main author actually Barker wrote and an, uh, a description of the paper on PaleoCast Oh, there well. you go. Cool. And not to divert from our own podcast here, but Tetrapod Zoology has a podcast, and PaleoCast is a podcast, and if you guys like us, you should also listen to those podcasts, because they're yeah. also really cool. Yeah, cool people. They were giving some of the purposes that it could be used for, and it's very similar to what they said uh, with our Tyrannosaurid, in that it may have been for temperature detecting in a nest to make sure mm-hmm. that the eggs were being kept correctly. Communication is definitely a possibility. Yeah. They, once again, rubbing snouts for courtship, but they also brought up that combat oh, would yeah. function to this, but you, basically they're using their faces as swords to duel <laughs> each other. Yeah. And so, you know, biting and otherwise, and crocs do this. Crocs will, you know, combat with their face uh, as well as nuzzle, you know, either body rubbing or face rubbing during courtship, and they made the point that bite marks on Allosaurid and Tyrannosaurid skulls 
have indicated face-to-face contact is a yeah. common thing. Uh, the other thing though, that they brought up was defleshing could be important to make sure that you avoid bones by you know nimbly getting around all the meaty bits yeah. uh, while eating. So it's the once again it comes down to the fact that they're using their face as their hand. You know? Yes, they're having to do everything with their mouth, and so having a sensitive mouth isn't too surprising. Very cool. It's it's really neat stuff. Now he he did a quick aside on uh, the lips issue because that was one of the big things. Oh yeah, when the Displetosaurus one. Displetosaurus uh, was that was one of the big things they noticed, and he made a note that they said that the skin texture looked like it had scaling all the way down to the teeth, much like a crocodilium. Mm-hmm. This is something I got to learn by reading this about crocs that I did not know, which is very Ooh. exciting. Thanks, Darren. Then I saved the article he linked to because it's <laughs> fantastic. The skin on the face of a crocodilian is not scaling, but cracked skin. Yes, I learned that too reading about this. Yep. And so when you look at their face, it looks like they have a lot of different large scales, but it's actually cracked skin that's very keratinized. So it's very tough skin, mm-hmm. you know, much like scales, but it is not separate pieces. It's formed these patterns through growth. That's cool. Yeah, and so he made the point that if theropods had a similar type of skin on their face, which what they've seen shows that it had thick skin on the face, so mm-hmm. definitely had, you know, thick areas there, but if it did, we don't we can't know exactly how that keratinized skin would display itself on a differently shaped skull. Right, right, right. It might not be as cracked, it might be smoother, it might be very different, you know. Interesting. Yeah, he didn't go into lots of detail on it, but that right, it, right. it may not have worked the same, so we can't necessarily draw an exact parallel. Cool. Yeah. Oh boy. Theropods are fun. It was a cool one. Yeah, they're they're neat. It's oh, just learning how big predators function are always cool. Sure is. Speaking of big cool animals with sensitive snouts and terrifying teeth. Arguably scarier. Uh these these my final news article is about a group of animals that is probably among the most terrifying animals around today. I mean, they they really should be giving most people nightmares. They really should be. Yeah. Uh, they, they, there are not enough horror movies about hippos. Hippos today are one of the largest land animals around. They're one of the few mega herbivores we still have around. Mm-hmm. They are dominant in, in African ecosystems, but that has not always been the case. Around right, so that 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 kind of started around seven million years ago or so in the Miocene, and there is this period of time during which hippos became abundant, mm-hmm. and this is known that that they they had a, a burst of diversity. This is called the hippopotamine event, <laughs> where they <laughs> exploded in diversity, but it's not been very clear when this happened or or why this happened mm-hmm. until now. So this is a new study that, once again, is identifying a new species from a Miocene site in Ethiopia. This is Boisserie et al. I don't know why I said that with a French accent. It's probably French. I'm going to keep it that way. <laughs> You're French now. In the Journal of Vertebrate Paleontology. What they did here, so they identified a new species. They looked at a sequence of hippo fossils through the layers through time and found some interesting correlations. So starting with the new species, this is Chororotherium rubii. And these are known from teeth uh, because when you have mammals, you can identify species from teeth. Yep. Based on the teeth, this is similar to ancient hippos, but 
also very similar to modern style hippos, uh, mainly in the fact that its teeth have this really good structure for eating grass. Oh, okay. For, for, for really specializing on grass, which makes this apparently the first modern hippo. It also falls at around 8 million years ago, right at the time where this eruption in hippo diversity was going on. So what they did was they looked at a few different layers in the fossil record, and they found that at around 8.5 million years ago, hippo fossils made up about 6% of the fossil assemblages in this area. One million years later, around 7.5 million years ago, and since then, hippos make up about 30%. Wow. So between 8.5 and 7.5 million years, hippos exploded. Jeez. That's a lot of hippos. This new fossil is right in the middle of all that. It seems to represent this transition from the older style hippo to the newer style hippo. The other thing that happened in this same time period was that new grasses were spreading across the region. Mm. That the regime of plants in the area, likely related to climate changes, was changing. So that over the course of this time period, new grass was taking over just as these hippos were then adapting their teeth to be grass specialists and exploding in diversity, which seems to indicate that the climate change and resulting change in plants was a, if not the, major driver of the conquest of hippos in Africa. Very cool. Yeah, it's a it's a very simple study, very straightforward, new species, uh, just some really, really interesting implications about how this group of animals rose to where they are today. Yeah, it's, it's neat when uh, things like a new food source, you know, or plant coming into its, you know, its heyday can lead the way for a bunch of other species to yes try new adaptations and you know also take over uh and that that's a cool one you know it's things you might not typically expect of just you know grass is growing now and now these animals just have everything they could want to eat yeah and that's probably pretty common yeah i mean it makes sense of you can't spread out if you don't have food yep we talked about that in episode three with snakes that the Mm -hmm. the rise of modern snakes was probably also a food at least partially a climate and habitat and food related event yeah and it's it's uh it's an interesting thing to think about because a a group that suddenly becomes successful you know that may not have been beforehand can lead to both other species becoming successful as well as other species going extinct yes you know the rise of rodents is gonna push out all other small mammals that you know any non-placentals you know we see that on islands all the time oh yeah them the pushing. poor multi-tuberculates but if you are eating mice oh well, that's a heyday yes and if you are a competitor of the things that are now eating the mice mm-hmm. that's a bad day for you yep and so all the you know grass taking over the world really does set off a whole bunch of these chain reactions which is yeah, really I mean, cool it was surely pushing other plants out of their yep. niches but also giving new food source to new animals, but any plants it pushed out would now eliminate food source for other animals. And so you're going to have this whole one thing yep. can now cause a, a trophic cascade Indeed. that just affects everything. And that's really cool. Trophic cascade. There'll be a quiz at the end of the episode. It's one of my favorite terms. I just love It's a it. great term. It's, it's well done. <laughs> Remember that, listeners. Keep a vocab list. That's my, that's my vocab word of the day. I try to use a new <laughs> one every day. <laughs> That's it. Uh, there's going to be a whole lot more vocab words coming up. So, oh, oh yeah, no, I'm not. Stay tuned. Yeah. Yeah, I, you guys all remember these. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
That's the news. Over to our main discussion topic of the evening. And we head back to our main desk. Back to you. Whatever time it is, wherever you listeners are. Back to me! (laughs) Thanks to me. (laughs) Thanks to me. (laughs) (laughs) So today's episode is about the geologic time scale. This is a really fun... I really like talking about geologic time and the history of the Earth and the history of life because I like to refer to it as the greatest story in the world. Mm-hmm. It's the biggest story. It's the best story. Yeah, it's a huge topic, and it's pretty cool. Yeah. So we talked about, all throughout our news section, every episode we're talking about parts of history. You know, the, this time period, that time period, things that happened in the past, and what order they happened. All of this is part and parcel of our understanding of geologic time. Mm -hmm. That is, starting at the beginning of the planet, going all the way till today, how do we construct our understanding of where all of this... uh, uh, How do we put this in our minds, right? What framework do we understand all of this in? And that is the geologic time scale. Yeah, you often hear called deep time, because it's you're dealing with time scale. You're dealing with units of time that don't get used in any other situation. Yeah, and it it the whole planetary history. Mhm. So before we talk about sort of where the time scale comes from and how we use it, let's do a quick overview of what the time scale is. Yes. The time scale is of course the annotated history of the planet, which we have broken down into time periods that basically to help us talk about it. Mhm. And so now we present to you a really quick overview of the history of the planet. This yeah. is a whirlwind tour of the geologic time scale. At the beginning of the time scale, we start with a time period called the Hadean Eon. And Eon is a word that means a really, really long period of time. The Hadean Eon is a time that is identified by the fact that it doesn't seem like a great place to live. The crust is still forming. You're still getting bombarded by lots and lots of impacts, extraterrestrial impacts. No living organisms are known from this time. It is followed up by the Archean Eon, which is notable for having fossils. The first fossils show up here. Things like stromatolites, things that are hints at microbial life. We do actually find uh, fossilized cells as well as the chemical residues of ancient life. Following that, you have the Proterozoic Eon, which is another very long period of time during which we see things like the rise of complex cells the rise of photosynthesis, uh, cyanobacteria, organisms using photosynthesis. All throughout these three eons, life is microbial, life is simple, the planet is not particularly very recognizable compared to today. Mm -hmm. The final eon of Earth history is the Phanerozoic. The Phanerozoic eon starts with the event we talked about a couple episodes ago, the Cambrian Explosion. Yeah, yeah. We know so much about the Phanerozoic Eon that we split it further into three eras, the Paleozoic, the Mesozoic, and the Cenozoic, and we know so much about those that we split them even further. The Paleozoic is split into six or seven periods that start with the origins of modern animal life. That's the Cambrian period. Following the Cambrian, the Ordovician period, the Silurian, the Devonian, the Carboniferous, the Permian... Over the course of this time, we see the rise of all the different types of animals that we have today, the major groups of animals and plants that we have today. Things diversify in the ocean. The Devonian is the age of fishes. Then plants and animals and then vertebrate animals make it onto land, and we see the rise of forests and the rise of amphibians and the rise of reptiles. 
all of this diversification, all of this wonderful history ends at the end of the Permian with the Permian mass extinction, which leads the way into the Mesozoic era, which is called the Age of Reptiles. Mm -hmm. The Mesozoic is split into three periods of its own, the Triassic, the Jurassic, and the Cretaceous. And those are notable because that's the time periods where we find dinosaurs and pterosaurs and giant marine reptiles like mosasaurs and plesiosaurs and things like that. We see the rise of modern amphibians. In this time period, we see the rise of turtles and crocodilians and mammals and birds. All the good stuff. All the good stuff. And then the Mesozoic ends at the end of the Cretaceous period with the KPG mass extinction that we talked about back in episode 5. And then the final era of the final eon of the geologic timescale is the Cenozoic, the Age of Mammals. One trend that you'll notice as we go through this is that the closer we get to the present, the more we split up the time periods. Mm -hmm. And the reason for this is that the closer we get to the present, the more we know about the time periods. Because the less time there has been for the rocks and the fossils to be destroyed in the course of time. The easier it is to find stuff. Yes. So the Cenozoic is split into two periods, the Paleogene and the Neogene, but you will very commonly hear those split even further into the epochs. The Paleocene, Eocene, Oligocene, Miocene, Pliocene, Pleistocene, mm -hmm. and Holocene. Over the course of which we see the rise of various groups of mammals. Um, the Mesozoic era at the beginning saw Pangaea, which then split up over the course of the Mesozoic, and through the Cenozoic, the continents move to the positions where they currently are at. Mm -hmm. Over the course of those last few epochs of this era, the continents move to where they are today. Antarctica slides over the South Pole, like we talked about last time, and freezes over. All the modern groups of mammals show up. The Ice Age begins right at the very end through the Pleistocene epoch. Humans show up toward the end there. Modern humans show up right at the very end, and that brings us to the present. This is the geologic timescale, yeah. right there, the history of the planet Earth, starting all the way back in the Hadean and moving down to the Holocene epoch, which we are still in today. If you ever want want an easy way to learn it, there's a song by the uh, group that did an article called, or uh, uh, album called Cruising the Fossil Freeway, and they go through oh, cool. all, all the major uh, ages, and it's pretty great. So yeah, that look that up. <laughs> is awesome. We will put that in the blog post. Yes. <laughs> Sweet. So all of that is basically, that's the, again, that's the timeline of Earth history. We have split it into chunks that help us keep track of when things happened and what order things happened mm -hmm. in. It is, that it, it, the, the geologic timescale is very common if you take an intro geology class yeah. that you will be asked to memorize parts of it. Mm -hmm. uh, and when you do it, that's when you you notice that the closer you get to the present, the more you're expected to remember the divisions. Yes. And and uh, the parallel that I always draw in my brain when I notice that or think about that is it's the same as when you think about history class. Is yes. the amount of time you spend, unless it's a Egyptian study class, the amount of time yep. you spend on humans' time in Egypt compared to the 1920s is... Yes. <laughs> vastly different because now this is recent history and we have more details on it. We have, we can draw better conclusions. We can tease things out more. And so yes. we can take a closer look at it. Uh, and it, we can make a more, you know, complete picture. Yeah. You see the same thing with the geologic timescale that recent time periods are much clearer. We have much more mm -hmm. information. We know 
probably more about the Pleistocene epoch, which is the last epoch of the last period of the last era, mm-hmm. than we do about the entire Cretaceous period. Yes. Definitely more than we do about the entire Triassic period. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, so the close, the farther back in time you go, the harder it is for us to find those things, the more unlikely it is for things to be preserved, the less resolution we have, and so the less information we have. Mm-hmm. So even though the, you know, the era of reptiles is by far one of the most popular fossil ages, we're only looking at a very small percentage of what was actually running around at that time. And, Indeed. You know, so it's one of those things, the younger it is, the more likely you are to find it. This is true. So where does this time scale come from? Where, where, where do we get this? How do we figure this out? Pulled it out of hat. Pulled it out of the hat. Yeah. The quick answer is that the time scale is really just a visualization of the geologic record. Mm-hmm. So the geologic record is made up of layers of rock and sediment. If you yeah. travel to the Grand Canyon, which I recommend, it's a cool place, and look at the walls of the canyon, you will see all these layers of rock. Have these bands of earth. Yep. Every layer is a record of a past environment. The sediments that make it up, the features that are that are present there, the fossils that you find there are clues to an ecosystem, an environment, a habitat that used to be. If you find, right, limestone is formed in shallow oceans, right, where you get things like coral reefs. Sandstone might come from a beach, it might come mm-hmm. from a riverbed, it might come from a desert, and depending on where it was formed, you will see different features in the sand, yeah. and you will see different kinds of fossils. So one of the jobs of a geologist is to look at a layer of rock and say, all right, this is what this rock was, right? This was a forest. This was mm-hmm. a swamp. Yeah, figure out what it took to form that formation. <laughs> yes. And then when you look at your Grand Canyon, for example, again, if you're looking at many, many layers on top of each other, what you're seeing is changing environments. Yep. Your beach becomes a reef. Your reef becomes a beach again as sea level rises and falls. Your swamp becomes a desert as the climate changes. Right? You're looking at changing environments over time. Mm-hmm. A succession of past environments and conditions over the course of Earth's history. Yeah, and as they change environments, this changes the rock that they lay down. Yep. And it will change what lives there, which changes the kinds of fossils that you're going to find. And so this is sort of the basic foundation of geology is looking at these layers. What do they tell us and what do they tell us about the passage of time? Yes. In the 1600s is really when geology kind of started kicking off in, in the sense of investigating things like this. And a famous name that you will hear coming from this time period is Nicholas Steno. And Steno is famous for doing a thing that a lot of scientists get famous for, which is writing down obvious statements. (laughs) Yes. Steno developed a lot of our modern principles of stratigraphy. Stratigraphy is the study of rock layers and the succession of, of rock layers. Steno wrote down such incredible insights as the law of superposition, which says the rock layers on the bottom are the oldest. Yep. Which is kind of duh, mm-hmm. but it's not a well-known principle until somebody points it out. Yeah, it's that's something that it's always a good thing to remember is that common sense things at some point were insightful. Yes, exactly. 
<laughs> but it makes perfect sense that, you know, you can't build a house from the top. Mm-hmm. The bottom layer is the oldest. Uh, he pointed out things like the fact that uh, rock layers are laid down horizontally, mm-hmm. that rock layers in different parts of your region should be contiguous and contemporaneous. That is to say that they correlate to each other, right? It's the yeah. same time. Yeah. It's the same, even if it's not the same environment, right? You might have rocks that represent a beach, and if you follow them west far enough, they grade into rocks that represent the ocean. Because mm-hmm. the whole world wasn't a beach, you had different environments in different places. So you're putting all of this together, and you're basically looking at what changes am I seeing, how can I infer the, the changes over time. Yeah. But not every place is like the Grand Canyon. No. Unfortunately. Yeah. And even the Grand Canyon only has a chunk of Earth history. Mm-hmm. So one of the big jobs of geologists, especially early on in geologic study, was correlating layers across the world. Yeah. It's, it's a big uh, cooperative effort. Indeed. And basically what you're doing there is you're looking for, all right, I have a beach here. What global effects can I find to match between different layers in different parts of the world. So to use an extraordinarily famous example, which we talked about, we devoted an entire episode to, mm-hmm. the KPG boundary yep. is the layer of clay below which you find ammonites and big forams and dinosaurs and pterosaurs, and above which you don't find any of those things. Nope. You can find this same layer in many places in the world. You see it in Colorado, you can see it in Austra- uh, uh, Antarctica. I don't know if you could see it in Australia. That, I do not know. Look it up. We'll have to look it up later. Yes, we will. But basically, you say, all right, well, I have this sequence of layers, which Mm -hmm. represents a particular event, right? We're looking at an event represented by the fossils, right? That life changed, represented by this clay layer, which is conveniently laid down all over the planet. Yep. And if you find it at the top of your layers over here in Colorado and the bottom of your layers over there in Alberta, now you can stack those on top of each other and you are building this timeline. Yeah, it acts as a baseline, a, a common reference point. Yes. So you can look at geological events, right? You can look at the, the, the changing sea levels. You can look at changing positions of the continents. Probably the biggest thing that is used for correlation of layers across time, especially early on, was faunal succession, mm-hmm. right? What fossils do you see? What was life like? Yeah. Because, like like in that previous example, there were dinosaurs and then there weren't dinosaurs. And then yep. if, if you've got mammals in your timeline, then that helps you figure out where it fits along with these other layers. Yeah, you can at least know it was before or after certain events. Indeed. So you put all this together and geologists work, you know, all over the globe to do this. And eventually what you have is a sequence of rock layers that you have correlated across the planet Mm -hmm. that start all the way at the beginning and go all the way to the present. Yep. That same timeline that we just ran through real quick at the beginning of this episode is represented in those rocks. Exactly. And so it's, yeah, I've I've heard lots of people compare them to pages of a book, uh, which is always a, a nice way to visualize it is it's a, you know, book laying on its side with chapter one down against the table. Yes, exactly. <laughs> One of the nice things about this is that, it, you know, it's putting together your history of the planet and your sequence of events. One of the really nice things and one of the really encouraging things is that your sequence of events 
is always the same. Mm-hmm. So when you're putting all this together, you you know it's tempting to ask, and you should ask, how do we know that we're getting this right? How do we yeah. know we're getting the order right? How do we know that we're not missing pieces? And the answer is, well, first of all, you are missing pieces. That's why you're correlating across different parts of the world. Yep. But the wonderful thing is that there are so many sequences of stratigraphy around the world. There are so many preserved rock layers that you get to come at this from many, many different angles. Mm-hmm. And this allows you to look for a word that I am going to bring up over and over again over the course of this episode. And that word is corroboration. Yes. The same different layers in different parts of the world are going to show you the same sequence of events. When you find that KPG layer, it will always be on top of dinosaurs and below mammals. Mm-hmm. When you find trilobites, you will not ever find trilobites and dinosaurs in the same place. Yeah, exactly. You will, you will all, you'll never find humans in the same place as indricotheres or as stereospondyls, I, I guess, except for Sicilians if they're stereospondyls. <laughs> Although you won't find them besides Sicilians anyway because there's no Sicilians in the fossil record. You are always going to see this same sequence of events. Yeah. Trilobites down here. Pangea happens here. Dinosaurs go extinct here. Humans show up here in the Ice Age up here. You're, you're getting that reinforced over and over and over again. And that's where we put together this time scale. Yeah. It's, that's you know the, the core idea behind science of cor- corroboration is you see the same thing every time a subject is looked at, regardless of who's looking at it or how they're looking at it, they always find that gravity works and that <laughs> yes, <laughs> you know, these different things hold true. And this one's important because you all are only getting a piece of the puzzle. This is also why we only find certain fossils in certain parts of the country. Like people, yep. you know, here in Florida always ask, you know, oh, what, what kind of dinosaurs do we find here? Well, not, not many. No, no, we don't because you don't have the right rocks. Because we don't have the right rocks. We get a lot of really recent stuff because once again, that preserves much easily, and we have a lot of really old stuff, because that's what most of Florida is made out of. Very old rock. Yup. And so we get lots of pre like way pre-dinosaur stuff, and lots of very young stuff after the dinosaurs. But because yes. of this, you can, the layers are not going to be all complete, or all, you know, if a mountain rose up somewhere, it might have disrupted a layer. Yes, and indeed, that's why, if you go out to the Midwest, you get a lot of Mesozoic rocks, mm-hmm. things like you know, Cretaceous, things like that. But here in the East, where the Appalachians have shoved up all these rock layers from deep down, you get a lot of much older stuff. Yep. And so that's why the corroboration is so important is you have to be comparing from where you can see the right layers to actually do the comparison. Yes. That's a really good point that the right rocks only crop out in certain places. Mm -hmm. And that informs where scientists go to look for things. Yeah, that's that's a cool part. Uh, I was talking with Michelle Stocker at a conference recently who studies... She was studying phytosaurs, and that's why I was talking to her about those. Um, if you don't know what a phytosaur is, we'll do a whole episode on phytosaurs. They're awesome. They're they're pretty cool. They're not crocs, but they're really trying to be. Yeah, they're almost, almost there. And so what she's interested in is the middle of the Triassic. Mm-hmm. And the trouble with the middle of the Triassic is there's only so many places in the world you can go to find rocks of that age... And so she, I was talking to her about research that she, she's been working with others in places like Arizona. Mm -hmm. She was studying a fossil from China and she was like a week away from heading off to field work in Tanzania because that's where she needed to go to find the time period that she was looking for. 
Yeah. So it really does. Uh, it really is important to know this sequence of events to figure out where you need to go to find the part of history that you want to investigate. Yeah. It's it's that's one of my favorite aspects of it is that you can aim for different areas. It's like I I want to find this aged fossils, so I know of five places that I could I, I should go to most likely find some of that stuff and that's it's you know some major discoveries have been found using that technique indeed so we have this sequence of events the next step is naming them all mm-hmm. right so you you've put all these rock layers together but they're they're just rock layers right there's not you and, and the rock layers are different in different places so this layer over here might just be a volcanic eruption whereas this layer over here might be centuries of accumulation in a lake. Mm -hmm. So what we do is we look at all of this change and all of this diversity and and the the sequence of fossils and the sequence of continental movements and all that stuff, and we need to categorize things because that's what humans do. Yep, it's how our brains work. Just like in the Tree of Life episode, we're breaking the spectrum of life into discrete groups that we give names so that we can talk about them. And bite-sized bits. Bite-sized bits. We do the same thing with the geologic time. Mm-hmm. So all those names, the Hadean, Eon, the Cretaceous period, the Pleistocene epoch, those are all things we made up. Very much like the tree, you know, the, the, the tree of life and the groupings that we identify there, those periods are based on something. Yeah. And usually they're based on, t- they're t- they represent time periods that you can recognize based on their features. Same way that, you know, an amphibian is a type of animal you recognize based on its features. Yes. There's a list of qualifiers that allowed us to denote a name to a sequence of time. Yes. So the boundaries between the layers typically represent major shifts. Mm-hmm. It is not an accident that the Cretaceous period ends with the KPG boundary and the KPG extinction. I always thought that was too convenient. Indeed. We named it that way, right? We called it, we said, that's where it ends, right? The Triassic, the Jurassic, and the Cretaceous all end with mass extinction events mm-hmm. because those extinction events rewrite the, the the global ecosystems enough that geologists said, all right, well, we better call this something different. Yeah, when they're also something that we can point to, that yes. we can see. You know, we don't want to base a timescale on something that's very subtle and minute because you may not be able to pick it out so it's not worth but if you can notice the change every time then we yep. can all say oh wait we see the change we now we know what rock we're dealing with indeed it's very much like you know the uh archaeologists have a very similar yes yeah you know, it's doing the same thing for human history and you have the stone age the bronze age the iron age yep and they're named for what was happening at that time yeah, if you find a certain kind of artifact if you find stone tools mm-hmm. there you go if you find dinosaurs you're in the age of dinosaurs yep a lot of boundaries are based on extinction events some of them are based on dramatic changes in climate right the pleistocene epoch is pretty much just the ice age yeah starts with the onset of glaciation ends with the quote end of glaciation although it's only been 11,000 years so yeah it's you know i'm sure we're fine i i i'm sure there's some sort of reason why the glaciers won't come back yeah but we're Not we're sure making sure we're, we're 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 stacking the deck with the, that name is going to stick <laughs> so these periods of time are you know eons epics periods eras are times that we've divided time into one of the interesting effects that happens is 
what we try to do, and for the most part we do, is find global patterns. Yes. Right? The dinosaurs didn't go extinct in one place, they went extinct everywhere. But there are some cases where your names are based on local things, Mm -hmm. so the names are different in different parts of the world. Yeah. The most famous example of this is toward the end of the Paleozoic era, right, at a time when forests were dominating the world. That's a time period that's called the Carboniferous because of all the coal that's found there from all the forests and swamps that were around at the time. But in the United States, it's split into the Mississippian and the Pennsylvanian because we have so much information on this time period in this country, on this continent, that we are able to divide it at a better resolution. Yes. Another example is uh, when Will and I were in graduate school, we learned through the Cenozoic era, the age of mammals, about the North American land mammal ages. Yep. Which are time periods, right? We divided the age of mammals up based not on, you know, it's, it's, the same time period that is split by other means, some scientists have attempted to split it specifically based on which mammals are found at which times. When a certain animal enters the fossil record and when a certain animal leaves. Yup. The trouble is that it only works on one continent. Yes. And there's right? a bunch if, of them. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> right? Because one of, you know, you have a, a land mammal age that's based on the appearance of bison. Yeah. That's great, but bison came over from Asia. And there's no Australian bison. Yes. So it, it only works in North America. And so you get, you know, you also have South American land mammal ages, and we try to find as many ways of breaking things up as we possibly can. Yeah, because as you're saying, if you're going to look at something closely, you know, if I'm talking about how big an ant is, and I'm using foot as my measurement, then I'm going to be <laughs> talking in decimals the whole time, and that's not very clear. Yes. If I break it down into millimeters and, you know, smaller and smaller, you know, microns, when I'm talking about their body parts, now we can be very specific. And so the more you break it up, the more precision you have. Indeed. The other thing that's important to remember is that all of these names and all of these time periods don't mean anything without context. Yes. And that's why, you know, that's why commonly we refer to the Cenozoic era as the age of mammals. Because mm-hmm. that tells you where it was after the age of reptiles. The Ice Age, you know, I've I've talked to a lot of people who have this idea in their head that, okay, you had the age of dinosaurs, dinosaurs went extinct, Ice Age happened. Yeah. Like, All right, well, that's not the case. There were tons, there's tons of time, tons of environmental change between those things. Yeah. And so the reason we have this time scale is so that we can put all of this change into context. Mm-hmm. And that's why whenever we mention time periods on the podcast, I always try to say, it's like, all right, we're talking about the Carboniferous. This, by the way, is right before the Age of Dinosaurs started at at a time when Pangaea was finishing forming Mm -hmm. to give you a sense of where we are in the time frame. Yeah, in the the order of events. Yes, because without context, it doesn't matter, unless you know when World War II happened, Mm -hmm. right? After World War I and before, you know, other wars. (laughs) You need that context to understand what the situation was. So we have this timeline, right? We have constructed our timeline. We've slapped names on all the periods. We've slapped boundaries in between them. This is our geologic history. The next question is, how do we use this? Well, not only does it tell us the order of events, not only does it help us say, all right, well, you know, the sea level changed and did this, and then the fossils did this and this and this, 
It also means we can now put new discoveries in context with the rest of it. Yes. So we come to the big question, when we find a new fossil or a new fossil layer or a new rock layer, how do we know where it goes in the big timeline picture? Yeah, how do we actually give it a placement? Indeed. There are two answers to this. The first answer, the much more common answer, is a technique called relative dating. Yeah. Uh, This is the part where just about every geology professor in the world will make some sort of joke about Alabama (laughs) or their state in the south of choice. Yep. Relative dating. Ha ha ha. Uh, We uh, at the Common Descent Podcast are above that. Yes. Relative dating, the geologic type. Basically what relative dating is saying, it's using the same basic principles we use to construct the timeline in the first place. You're saying, all right, we understand the sequence of events. Mm -hmm. We have this great image of the overall sequence of events throughout the history of the planet. We want to find out our new fossil, our new rock layer, is this before, during, or after other events? That's why it's relative dating. You're, You're picking a time relative to other things. The stratigraphy can all, of course, help. Like we said before, if you find the KPG boundary, you know where you are. You are right at the end of the Cretaceous. The biggest method of relative dating is based on fossils. Yes. Because fossils change the most predictively and the most consistently. All of this change, uh, real quick, we should note that the big picture, because you, you, you see in the news and we talk about on the podcast how there's all these details that we're constantly arguing over. Oh, did this happen first? And yeah. oh, well, the, the earliest Sicilians are actually back here and they weren't over here and this hippo's over here and this yeah, and this. I mean, we mentioned something on the in the news section about something being older than we thought it was almost yep. every episode. There's something in the news that mentions, oh, it's actually a lot older than we previously thought. Yeah. And that's a very valid point. The fine details, we are constantly refining and constantly discussing. The overall picture has been confirmed and refound and corroborated over and over and over and over again. We have a very, very good sense of the order of events on the broad scale in Earth history. Yeah, it's when you hear about those things, quite literally, that is a scientist splitting hairs. Yeah, for good reason, right? We're trying to be as specific as possible. Yeah, it's legitimate stuff, but we are we are at those points when we're adjusting something by just a bit or pushing back when we thought something arrived. That is us just tweaking yes. the resolution. Not actually, it's very rare that, you know, it's never happened since either of us have been alive where they've had to go on and go, you know what, I think this whole epoch needs to actually be completely <laughs> shifted. Yeah. It turns out that rabbits actually showed up in the Cambrian period. Yes. Did not exactly. know that. Yeah. Very strange. I don't know what they're eating. Um. <laughs> so fossils are, are excellent to use for relative placement on the time scale. Yes. This is called biostratigraphy, the sequence of events in the fossil record. If you find dinosaurs, you know you are in the Mesozoic era. If you find trilobites, you know you are in the Paleozoic era. And mm-hmm. this can get very, very specific, right? If you have T-Rex, for example... Right, T-Rex only lived at the very end of the Cretaceous. Yes. So you have a very good sense of where you are based on when you know these fossils were around. Yeah. Now, this can get a little tricky because there is a trap that you can easily fall into here. And to demonstrate this trap, uh, my assistant Will, my lovely assistant, Hello? Uh, will help me out. Play along. All right. 
Hey, Will, that's a cool T-Rex fossil you have there. It sure is. What part of the timeline is it from? Well, this is from the later Cretaceous. Wow. How do you know that that rock layer is from the later Cretaceous? Oh, we looked at a, a, a bunch of things to see what animals we found there, and we know T-Rex is from the late Cretaceous, and we found it there. Wow, so you have T-Rex in your frock layer, and you know T-Rex is only ever found in the late Cretaceous. Yeah. How do you know those other rock layers with T-Rex in them are from the late Cretaceous? Because the T-Rex is from the late Cretaceous. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> you c It can be very easy to fall into this trap of, well, T-Rex was in the late Cretaceous, so these rocks are late Cretaceous, because all late Cretaceous rocks have T-Rex in them, because T-Rex is from the late Cretaceous, and now you have fallen into the dreaded specter of... Circular reasoning. This is a big problem it really <laughs> when it is. comes it, to dating. Because you can have a lot of seps in a circular reasoning you know, argument, and it all yes. seems to support itself until you step back and look at it all. <laughs> and that's why we don't use T-Rex for biostratigraphy very commonly. Mm -hmm. Typically, when you really want to get an age down, when you really want to figure out where you are, we use fossils that are extremely abundant, extremely common, extremely distinctive, and were only around for a brief time. Yes. We call these index fossils. Species of trilobites make great index fossils. Species of ammonites make great index fossils. We mentioned that in the Cambrian episode. Index fossils are really good because unlike T-Rex, who, you know, there's 20 good specimens of it, a species of trilobite that you found a thousand of them, and they're always before this and after this. Yeah. So if you want to know if you're in the late Cretaceous, you don't go with T-Rex. You say, all right, we have this ammonite species, this type of pollen, and this really abundant and th and this really abundant mammal. Mm -hmm. Those three, we know, we found a thousand of them, and they're always in this time frame. They're always in this time frame. They're always in this time frame. That's your biostratigraphy at work. Your species, yeah. your changing species that change rapidly and achieve abundance and are common fossils. Great for telling you where in the record you are. And uh, overlap is a big part of using that. Is you not only yes. want to look for those precise index fossils, but if you have a you know ammonite that was here for you know this you know these layers or this portion of the Cretaceous, and then a mammal that was there that overlaps with the end of when that ammonite showed up, and then continues on. Yes. Those overlaps are really key because now you can really zero in. If you have both, you know that it was. Yup. Yeah, that's how we. That was one of the ways that the fossil site we worked at was dated was animals Indeed. that had overlap uh, timeframes. Yeah. The only portion of our vast timeline where these species all lived at the same time. Another common form of relative dating that can support that is magnetostratigraphy. Yeah. So one of the weird things that the Earth does is that we have this magnetic field, mm -hmm. and as time goes on, the magnetic pole moves, and every now and then they flip. Yep. Uh, this does not mean the continents move. I've seen a lot of people get confused about that. The continents don't move. It just means that your compass points the other direction. That's what causes mass extinction. The Earth flips over. Half of the animals fall off. All the continents go, yep. and the animals fly off into space. <laughs> no, that's not what happens. All it is is the magnetic field, right? North Pole becomes South Pole, South Pole becomes North Pole for your compass. Yeah, your compass would become confusing. But when especially volcanic rocks form and cool, 
any magnetic minerals in them will line up with the poles. Yep. So you can tell by looking at your rocks, was this a time period of normal polarity like it is today or reversed polarity compared to today? And then if you have those other species, right, you say, all right, well, every time we've ever found this ammonite species, not only was it in the late Cretaceous, it also corresponds to a reversed polarity. Mm -hmm. So we can double check the rocks and say, all right, yeah, we are in a period of reversed polarity. So you can see we have this timeline of the magnetic shifts, and that can help refine your time even further. Yeah. This... Once again, gets back to that word that I loved from before, corroboration. Mm -hmm. It is rare that we will use one index fossil, or it is rare that we will use just magnetostratigraphy. We are going to use as many of these as possible to get as confident as we can be on this age. That's a, that's a big part of you know, most studies, is you want to find your answer makes sense from more than one point of view. You know, yes. Measure it with as many tools as you have. And that's exactly what this is, is biostratigraphy and magnetostratigraphy are both two different tools for trying to establish when a fossil was formed. Indeed. And there are a bunch of other things that you can do of a similar vein. If you're very recent, you can use the sequence of tools that you're finding in human sites. Mm -hmm. uh, you can use pollen, right? Pollen is a great thing to show you're changing, it's sometimes everywhere. changing of species, but also changing of climatic regimes, yep. right? Changing of, you know, you can look at sea level changes over time to see this species existed at this, at a period of increased sea level, which corresponds yeah. with a magnetic signature of this, and you can line them all up. One of the really interesting things that I learned recently is that if you are looking recently enough, you're magnetic minerals in your rocks not only flip with the poles, but will trace the migration of the North Pole. Oh. Because the North Pole doesn't stay still. It's always moving around. Yeah. And for the last short, you know, in, in very recent times, you know, recent-ish human history, we understand this migration at a high enough resolution that you can look at rocks and say, all right, the pole was over here, which tells us where we are <laughs> in yeah. history, which That's is pretty cool. Cool. So relative dating is really, like I said before, we are identifying, are we before, during, or after something else? Right, this rock layer happened during this magnetic anomaly. This happened before the extinction of this species, but after the appearance of this species. That is your relative dating. And you can place it, all right, here we are, anywhere in your timeline. I have this nifty new fossil. It has all these things... The only place in the timeline that fits all that information is right there in the late Cretaceous. Yeah, and it's you're you're putting things in between other events or among. It's it's all about putting things in order. Yes. The other way that you can infer where your new discovery goes on the time scale is what's called absolute dating. And absolute dating is putting actual numbers on your fossil or on your rock layer. It is worth noting, and we did this on purpose, that Will and I have gone this entire discussion of the geologic time scale and Earth history without mentioning any numbers. Yes. And the reason we did that on purpose is because you don't need numbers to have this time scale. You don't need numbers to know the orders of events. And indeed, much of the history of geology 
took place without us knowing the numbers that went along with these yeah, fossils exactly. and these layers. Geology kicked off, you know, it, 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 you know, really kicked off in the 16 to the 1700s. We didn't really start getting a good handle on getting actual numbers on fossils and rock layers until the early 1900s. But nowadays, it's extremely common, and we do this constantly, and nowadays we have actually been able to put numbers on the timescale, which is really, really cool when you think about it. And this is this is the dating that you typically hear about, is where we're yes. adjusting you know, exactly how many million years do we right. need to shift something, instead of you know how you know, what place does this fall right was it the late cretaceous was it the late late cretaceous was it the early late cretaceous yeah this is us saying numbers the most common and most famous form of absolute dating is radiometric dating yes radiometric dating is based on this principle that certain elements have forms or isotopes that break down over time mm -hmm. if you have potassium 40 Give it time, and potassium-40 will gradually break down into argon-40. Uranium-238 will gradually break down into lead. Carbon-14 will gradually break down into nitrogen-14. We can study these materials and understand the rate of this breakdown, the rate of their decay, and then you find a rock and you say, all right, well, this is how much decay has happened. This is how much those chemicals have changed. We know the rate that that change happens, which means we know how long it takes for this much decay to happen. Mm -hmm. It's really as simple as that. Yeah. Right? It ta all right. We do 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 do. This this is how much decay has happened. We've studied the rate it takes three million years for that to happen, and now you have your number. The most common, the most famous form of radiometric dating is carbon dating. Yes. Everybody knows carbon dating. Carbon dating is based on the same principle. Carbon dating is very unique in that it can be used on organic material. You can date uh, you can date fossils. You can date man-made items in some cases. You can date wood. Yeah, I mean they they've dated tortoise shell from even living tortoises before. Yep. So carbon dating is really cool because you can actually directly date your fossils because they have carbon in them. But carbon dating is also very limited. Carbon dating only really works back to about fifty, sixty thousand years. Mm -hmm. The Earth is about four and a half billion years old. Yep. Which means carbon dating is extraordinarily useful in a very, 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 very slim sliver of time. It's super popular for archaeologists. Absolutely. <laughs> and if you study late ice age, it's very popular. For the rest of the time scale, the nice thing is that carbon dating is not the only radiometric dating. Ooh. You can use potassium argon, which is helpful when you're... You, you can find it in volcanic rocks most of the time. Uranium is a great element to study because it's fairly common in certain minerals and uranium actually has two different isotopes that decay at two different rates. Mm -hmm. So if you find a sample of uranium, you can actually get two dates from it. Yeah. Which is really nice because you get that corroboration. Once again, you're checking yourself. Uranium decays into lead, into thorium, into uh, protactinium. You can use samarium neodymium dating. You can use rubidium strontium dating. There is a long, long list of elements that decay at a certain rate, that we understand that rate, that are found in certain materials, that you can examine them, figure out how much this changed, calculate the age based on that. And because they each have differing rates, each one can cover a different age of the Earth. You know, yes. Different ones will apply to older or younger, and some of them may overlap, and you can get 
differing it you can use different ones to date whatever it is you're looking at depending on what they have indeed uh carbon dating is is good like i said back to maybe 50,000 years but potassium dating goes back billions of years mm-hmm. uranium dating goes back effectively forever you know it, it's got such a long rate of decay which makes it sometimes not quite as good for really young things yes but excellent for very very old things uh, cuz eventually you reach a point where so much is decayed that you can't really measure it anymore. Yeah, you lose that resolution again. Or so little has decayed that you can't really tell. You have to get it in that sweet spot. Radiometric dates come with errors, right? It's not telling you to the day. So usually you'll see, uh, you know, it'll say we dated this to 98 million years, plus or minus 0.6 million. Yeah, it doesn't have a shelf life date on it. Yes. That's used by, it doesn't have. <laughs> yeah, so it, now that is a date with a resolution of... A little over a million years, mm-hmm. which sounds like a lot, but is actually, you know, that's like a 6%. Uh, it's less. That's 0.6% of your, which is pretty good. That's yes. that's pretty high resolution. A lot yes. of our radiometric dates are really, really solid these days. There are other forms of direct dating, of absolute dating. Some are also based on breakdown over time. Uh, mm-hmm. Fission track dating is... Basically, when uranium decays, it leaves tracks through minerals, which you can count. Thermoluminescence is a dating that measures the disruption in electrons by radiation of minerals over time. So the longer they're being exposed to radiation, like the sun or something, the more you're getting this change. Mm-hmm. There are a few things that look at that. There's a, there's a handful that look at how do atoms and chemicals change over time. Things that change in consistent rates, we can use them to calculate an age. Mm-hmm. Uh, another really interesting version of this that is for living things or once living things is looking at amino acids. Yeah. If you have a fossil that's only, you know, a few 10,000 years old or hundreds of thousands of years old, amino acids will change their form, right? So these are the the molecules that make up DNA. Mm -hmm. They will change their form gradually over time. That amino acids tend to be left-handed and right-handed, but as time goes on, the left-handed ones change into right-handed form once the living organism stops repairing things. Yeah. So that happens at a consistent rate, and you can look at it and say, oh, okay, this has been around for this amount of time. Yeah. Uh, in some of these cases, you might not get an exact amount of time, but it might be, okay, this has been around for at least this long, or yes. at most this long, or somewhere between these time periods. Uh, once again, with that corroboration, you can, using that range, if you use other techniques as well, mm-hmm. where they overlap, can give you even more precision. As we said earlier, never just using the single technique and being like, all right, done. Yes. Dated, good to go. In fact, that 98 million years plus or minus 0.6 that I said before is Mm -hmm. actually the example from the bird in amber Mm -hmm. that we talked about last episode. Yep. It was dated directly using, I think, uranium, and that's the number they got. And then it was corroborated with index fossils from the same layers which correspond to time periods that have been dated by other methods to between 95 and 105 million years. Mm -hmm. So you have two different methods telling you the same thing, which is how science works. That's corroboration. A couple other forms of absolute dating that are very famous and not based on decay or change or chemicals, uh, tree rings, dendrochronology, right? Trees create new rings. 
on a yearly basis. And depending on the year, the water, you know, how much water was available, what the temperatures were like, you will see the rings will have slightly different shapes and slightly different features. And you can count them, one, two, three, four, five, six, all the way back as far as you want. And if the ring shape is identifying a particular event, like a drought, you can correlate that with older trees mm-hmm. and stack up your trees the same way we correlated our geologic layers. And tree rings can take you back 10,000 years or more. Mm-hmm. And one of the coolest things about that is that tree ring dating, or the other one, which is basically looking at certain places lay down rock layers in a, at, a, at a set rate. Yes. So there's, uh, for example, there's a lake in Japan whose name I don't remember off the top of my head, but every year a new layer of silt is laid down. Mm-hmm. And if you drill down through it, you see these layers going back tens of thousands of years. Yeah. So if you have, you know, if you had a yearly flood in an area, you know, floodplains, yep. you know, to where it brings in a bunch of water and lays down silt or lays down nutrients or lays down fish materials and you can tell that's a yearly cycle you can now just count yes the years and the layers and the wonderful thing about this is that you can use these different absolute methods to check each other so people you know a, a lot of people get iffy around carbon dating because there are legitimately a lot of issues with carbon dating you can yeah. have contamination you can there's a lot of things that can go wrong with Dating, carbon dating especially, has a lot of really wonky things to it, but we have learned to account for those things in large part by using other absolute methods to help out. Mm -hmm. So you can date something with tree ring dating, correlate it with your carbon date, correlate it with your VARV stratigraphy or your amino acid racemization, and help to support it. We say, how can we make sure that our dates are well? We compare different methods. If you're using three, four, five different methods and they're all telling you the same thing, congratulations, you have scienced properly. Yes. And then carbon dating can go back a little farther and things like some of these other methods can go back a little farther and help correlate with older radiometric dates. And then those can help us correlate even older radiometric dates. Mm -hmm. And it's all supporting each other. There's no one way that we date things. And in fact, if you ever see a paper or a new study that dated a fossil and only used one method to date it, you're going to see a lot of skepticism around that from other scientists saying, all right, that's cool. Check that, right? Corroborate that. Let's see if we can get another method, if possible, because that's really what we want to have. Yeah, it it can, by doing that, and that's, you know, the very much like the peer review process of you're going through and double checking any parts you can and double checking doesn't mean just do the test twice it also means do the test twice with one method and twice with another method yes you double check everything and double check it from as many different avenues that you can indeed so when you're wondering how people date a fossil date a rock layer this is it right we're using relative methods to say all right this was during this time period before this after this we're also using absolute methods to say this is this exact age or thereabouts. This together, these all these methods together is what has given us the ability to say the KPG extinction happened at around 66 million years ago. Mm-hmm. The earliest hominids showed up, the earliest human ancestors showed up around six or seven million years ago. 
This also, we correlate this, we mentioned in episode 10, molecular clocks, by looking at how do genetics change over time, and can we put those ages on our tree of life? All of these different methods come together. I'm going to say this word one more time, corroboration. <laughs> We're using relative dating methods and stratigraphic methods and absolute methods all together to put this image of our history together. I feel like this point, when we say corroboration, we should have the Pee Wee Hermit. Ah! Ah! You said the word of the day! The word of the day! So this is where we get our time scale. All of this comes together to give us this beautiful timeline of Earth history. In the blog post, I will make sure to include some of my favorite interactive timescales from around the internet. Yeah. Where you can dive in there and look at them. So these days, right, when you say Cambrian, it doesn't just mean that time period really early on when the first animals were around. It means specifically this time to this time and these events and all of this. Yeah. The numbers still don't mean anything without context, which is why it's... whenever we give a number to something, I always still, I try, still just try to do the same thing, right? This is 98 million years old. What does that mean? Well, it means it was during the mid-Cretaceous, which is to say the last of the three periods of the age of dinosaurs mm -hmm. lived alongside things like Velociraptor, maybe? Velociraptor might have been later than that. <sighs> don't quote me on that. <laughs> but you get the idea. Yeah, and it's, for most of these, you know, because... You know, us saying that something, like you said there, with the something was 98 million years ago, oh, that sounds big, but then so does something was 2 million years. I mean, a million's a big number no matter what you're, yes. how you're looking at it. So everything that's above a million years ago sounds huge. <laughs> and until you're comparing it with this was 98 million years ago versus 200 million years ago when the first, right. you know, dinosaurs or crocodilians or what have you started showing you know so we can we're halfway between when they showed up and nowadays so you yes. can it's all about comparison because you know the numbers are cool and all but the series of events is oh yeah what we're actually going to be talking about yeah the numbers are meaningless without that con yes and that that's a whole other discussion to be had is the concept of millions of years and i think that i i've definitely met a lot of people who are made uncomfortable by that. Oh, it's the human brain's concept. not made to conceptualize and understand a million. I had a book called How Big is a Million? Oh, yeah, that's right. And it's fan... Look it up on Amazon if any of you are interested or have kids. Uh, it was one of my favorite books, and the whole thing was going through and saying, if we had a million cups of water, the tank that would need to hold it would be this big. Yeah. Here's what could fit <laughs> in it. My favorite was a page where it said, we are now going to show you, can't remember how many it was. I want to say it was like 100,000 mm -hmm. tiny stars. And then the next huh. like five pages were just filled with stars. And it goes, That's we would cool. need this many more pages to show you a million stars. And yeah. it was just showing you how big this number is. So our brain can't actually contain a million. That's might as well be saying infinity is you're talking about a number oh, that's yeah. outside the human ability to count. <laughs> yep. One of my favorite examples that I, I heard about recently of how to demonstrate the size of those big numbers mm -hmm. was with using seconds. Yes. And that one second, one Mississippi, is right there. A hundred seconds is about a minute and a half. Yes. A thousand seconds is not quite 17 minutes. Mm -hmm. A million seconds is 11 and a half days. Yeah. And a billion seconds is almost 32 years. And this that's the thing <laughs> is that 
because because you think that it just goes up, your brain just wants to say it just goes up by tens, you know. Right, right. Is that you know, well, one you know, one times ten is ten. Ten times ten is a hundred. Ten times ten is you know, right, and nice and just, linear. You keep going up, and that's true. But every time you multiply it by ten, it doesn't go up by ten. Right, 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 right. <laughs> it goes up by yeah ninety for you know nine more of whatever you were already at. It goes up exponentially and so it's it gets big fast it does and there's a whole other conversation to be had about the concept of deep time and and, yes. and you know how we can try to perceive it um and the the notion that just because something is difficult to comprehend and fairly ridiculous sounding which this is doesn't mean that we're wrong about it yes exactly <laughs> it doesn't mean the real world is a weird place oh yeah oh yeah it's the same thing whenever you hear about astronomical units and like yep. units dealing with space. It's like, oh yeah, that's this many light years away. How much is that in miles? Oh, that's not even worth saying because it's a crazy stupid the number. Sun, the sun is 93 million miles away. Yeah. All right, sure. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm going to have to take your word for that one because I don't know what that means. That's a bigger number than I thought you were going to say. <laughs> <laughs> that's bigger than I could count to today. Yes. Uh, you come back to me tomorrow. We'll see where I am. One of my favorite examples as a finishing up point of corroboration and, and u- really unique uses of dating, relative dating, and, and, and matching up our expectations for the timeline comes from a study in the 70s, I believe it was, that looked at the rotational period of the Earth in the past. Yeah. So listeners, as you may be aware, the Earth is losing speed in its rotation. Yep. The Earth's rotation is slowing down. Why are we losing speed? Because it's being stolen from us by the moon. Not a joke. Moon is actually stealing rotational speed. That's why the moon is gradually escaping orbit. That is, that's World War Three right there. We need to go get our speed back. Get our speed back from them. Now it's, now it's an episode of the Justice League. <laughs> so the question arises, and you can calculate this gravitationally, if the Earth's losing rotational speed, then it must have rotated faster in the past, mm-hmm. and it must have, so days were shorter. Yep. Now that's all physics, right? That's all gravity and math and, and doing calculations. Many years ago, somebody went into the fossil record to find the evidence of this directly, corroborationally. They looked at corals in the early Silurian, middle Silurian, and middle Devonian, and brachiopods, corals and brachiopods, which are two groups of animals that grow their shells or skeletons in layers, Mm -hmm. and they grow them daily. But you can also see changes in the layers over the seasons. Yeah. So they were able to look at these corals and brachiopods and say, all right, we can count the days of these shell growths, and we can see the cycles of seasons, which allows us to count the number of days in a year. Mm-hmm. And a year has not changed, right? The time it takes for the Earth to go around the sun is always, has been the same, but the spinning of the Earth has changed. So they were able to look and say, all right, this is how many days were in a year. And for the Devonian, I think it was, you know, which is 300 some million years ago, they calculated something like 420 days in a year. Yeah. Which corresponds to something like 21 hours in a day instead of the 24 that we have today. One of the most brilliant things about this is that you calculated the most days in the year the farthest back in time. Yep. And that as we got closer to the present, the amount of days in the year got smaller because the Earth's rotation was slowing down and days were getting longer. This is my favorite example of corroboration of dating techniques, where on the one hand, you've got physics and gravity and purely back-of-the-envelope 
calculations, and on the other hand, you're looking at the actual growth patterns of a fossil organism, you could not ask for two more different methods of approaching a question, and they give you the expected answer. Exactly. Which is fantastic. And that's and so that's what we try to do. And when answers get presented to the public and stated, usually means it's gone through a couple of these yes. corroborative tests and you know studies. So that's the geologic timescale. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it. We hope that that uh, will help inform people what we're talking about, uh, inform the questions that you have as we go forward. Whenever mm -hmm. we talk about news, ask those questions. Where did those dates come from? Did they corroborate them? Stuff like that. Before we wrap it up today, there are two things that we need to do. Both of them are related to Patreon. Woo! Our Patreon has been taking off gradually and encouragingly. Big thanks to all the people who have supported us on there. One of the rewards that you can get as a patron on our Patreon is that we promise, if you are at a certain level, to shout out your name on the podcast. And so, big thanks. We won't actually shout for anyone with earbuds in, but... The We're not actually going to shout, there. but it is a shout out. Big thanks in order of patronage to Sam Jones, Danson Hansen, phenomenal, <laughs> and Mermaid Athena, who appears to be an actual mermaid. Yeah, it's... Who knew? Big thanks to them. Big thanks to our other patron supporters as well. And one of the other rewards that you can get as a patron is the ability to submit questions for us to answer on the podcast. Very briefly, for now, we're going to throw these on the end of the podcast. Today's question comes from Sam Jones, who asks, I know certain groups of dinosaurs had a system of air sacs running through their bodies. Can you explain what that is and how it works? Excellent question, Sam. It's a good one. Very briefly, birds yes. have air sacs. The skeleton of birds, right? The, the bones in the back of the body of birds are unique among most living animals, in fact, I think all living animals, for having spaces within the bones. Mm -hmm. All of our bones have spaces in them, right? Our, our bones aren't solid all the way through. Yeah. They typically have spongy bone that leaves spaces for marrow and nerves and blood vessels and stuff like that. Yeah. Birds have taken this a step further and expanded the spaces inside many of their bones, vertebrae, limbs, uh, hip and shoulder elements, and concentrated the bone into the walls and struts that yes. support the bone on the inside. Catacombs. Yes. There is a common misunderstanding that this makes bird skeletons lighter, which it technically does not, because it's the same amount of bone. It's just concentrated in different arrangements. It's denser now where in the walls. Yes, it's the difference between having 20 pillars holding up your building and three really dense, strong pillars holding up your, your yeah. building. It's the same amount of pillar, it's just concentrated. In life, inside these spaces in bird bones, they have air sacs. Mm. These air sacs are extensions of the lungs. This is part of, I mean, it does a few things. It Arguably, the soft tissue of birds is more lightweight, since the space that would normally be filled with bone marrow is instead filled with air. It also means that birds can hold more air when they breathe in. There's more air space for air in there. Mm -hmm. It might also be help, helping them to regulate temperature, yeah. that you can circulate cool air or warm air through more parts of your body. Like a coolant system in a car. Indeed. But the biggest benefit of this is that those air sacs, being extensions of the lungs, factor into birds' extremely efficient respiratory system. Mm -hmm. When we breathe in, we breathe in, and all that oxygen-rich air goes down the trachea, fills the lungs, 
exchanges oxygen for carbon dioxide, and we launch it back out. Yep. Birds don't do it that way. In birds, the air doesn't go in and out the same path. Mm-hmm. They breathe in, the air goes to a set of air sacs in the back, then that air gets pumped to the lungs where it exchanges oxygen for carbon dioxide, then the new stale air gets pushed to the front air sacs, and then back out the mouth. So the air is looping. It's what we call unidirectional. Yes, it's not going back and forth. One direction. Crocs have a similar airflow. Yes, they do. So with birds, their air sacs are an essential part of this breathing system, which is extremely efficient. It's much more efficient than us. Oh, yeah. They're not mixing old and new air hardly at all in their breathing trajectory. There are many, many dinosaurs that had this very same system. Uh, Air sacs and hollow spaces in the bones for air sacs are known in many other dinosaur theropods, as well as sauropods. So theropods are all the two-legged meat eaters. Sauropods are the long neck, long-tailed style dinosaurs. Long necks, sharp tooths. Yes, the long necks and the sharp tooths. A lot of these dinosaurs not only had those same hollow spaces in a lot of their bones, but there is evidence that they had air sacs as well. Mm-hmm. And these air sacs would have been fulfilling very similar functions. Uh, temperature regulation, perhaps. Uh, making if, if these do indeed confer a lighter weight, then that is very easy to see how that could be important, especially for things like sauropods, which were gigantic. A hundred feet long, it helps. Yes, and even if it's not making you lightweight, it is making the bones sturdier without adding weight. Yes. Uh, And then the air sacs fill in that that internal space. But the most intriguing response here is that this probably means that dinosaur, a lot of dinosaurs had a bird-like respiratory system, especially since gators have something very similar. Yep. Once again, going back to that, if modern archosaurs have it, then past ones probably did too. Indeed. So the air sac system has a whole lot of benefits, but the base, the the, the, the big take-home is that it allows for air to circle around the body in the course of breathing so that the old air and the new air aren't mixing together, which allows for much greater efficiency, which means that the lungs are doing better work for less effort, Mm -hmm. which is what makes birds and presumably lots of other dinosaurs basically better breathers than us. Yep. So there you go, Sam. I hope that answers your question. Uh, We can throw some information about this onto the blog post as well. I I found some cool diagrams and things that'll display how the air sac system works. It's a pretty cool feature. Like it's, it's always exciting to me, you know, because there's lots of animals who can do things better that are stronger or faster than us, but it's neat when there's a, an animal with a physiology that is quote unquote superior yes. to our own. And that's neat because we like, you know, the typical concept is that they're like, no, we're by far, you know, the most complex, you know, animal. And right. blah, blah, blah. So yeah, but that doesn't mean we're doing everything. <laughs> Even if we're very complex, we're not doing everything <laughs> the best we could. Yeah. And that's cool. Thank you for your question, Sam. Thank you to all of our patrons on Patreon. Thank you to all of our listeners. Thank you to everybody who interacts with us on the internet in any way that you possibly can. And thank you even to the people who don't interact with us, who just yeah. listen and You're give us their listening. support. Thank you, because it's, as we've said, this is the fact that this is taking off the way it is, we could not be happier. This is what we're Indeed. wanting to be able to do. Indeed. If you're interested in listening more to us, you can find us, of course, on Podbean, iTunes, and Stitcher, and any app that uses any of those things. If you want to interact with us, and we encourage you to, you can interact with us on Facebook, on Twitter. You can email us at 
the com- at commandascentpodcast at gmail.com. Leave us iTunes reviews or reviews on Stitcher or Podbean or wherever else. We love to read those. If you want to support us financially, you can become a donor on Patreon. We love you if you do that. We love you anyway, but we'll love you if you do that too. Yep. We will return for the next episode of Common Descent in a fortnight. Keep an eye out for us then. And until then, sign-off phrase. <laughs> Take care, buddy. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. For more from us, you can follow us on the Common Descent Podcast Twitter account, Facebook page, or on our WordPress blog, where we post additional cool stuff for each episode. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome. You can find this and other video game remix music at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope to see you next time. Thank you.